If happiness is wanting the best that there is and having it forever, Dr. Michael Gleghorn reveals where you can find that happiness now on Probe. The Declaration of Independence says that all men are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Although we could say a lot about this statement, I want to focus on that very last phrase, the pursuit of happiness. What exactly is happiness, and how should we pursue it in order to have the best chance of attaining it? These questions not only interest us, they also interested some of the greatest thinkers from the far-flung past, and we'll consider their answers in this week's program. So what is happiness? An online dictionary says that happiness results from the possession of what one considers good. A good start, but it raises another question. Namely, what should we consider good? Many things can be described as good. A cat, a job, a lover, and a book may all qualify. And each of these things might even make us happy, at least for a while. But is there a good that offers us genuine and lasting happiness? And if so, what is it? Now we're getting closer to what the ancients were interested in knowing. Of course, as you can probably guess, many different answers were proposed. A few thought that happiness could be found in the pleasures of the flesh. But most believe you needed something a bit more lofty, shall we say, in order to experience real happiness. Things like friendship, peace of mind, virtue, and even God. One thing they virtually all agreed on was that a truly good and happy life ought to be lived with a sense of mission or purpose. Hence, the ancients did not think about happiness primarily in terms of just having a good time. Instead, they thought that there was an important moral component to happiness. As Christian theologian Ellen Chari notes, for the ancients, happiness comes from using oneself consistently, intentionally, and effectively, and hence it is a moral undertaking. The link between morality and happiness has, I fear, become rather underappreciated in our own day. But important as it is, many, including myself, don't believe that this can be the final word on happiness. So in an effort to find out what is, we'll spend the rest of the week looking first at some of the most important pagan perspectives on happiness from the ancient world, before concluding with a Christian proposal by possibly the greatest theologian in the early church, a man named Augustine. You've been listening to Probe with your host, Dr. Michael Gleghorn. To help you find the true source of happiness, pick up Michael's transcript, Ancient Perspectives on Happiness, free at probe.org. Again, that's probe.org. And join us next time as we help you think and live biblically here on Probe. This week, we're considering some of the top views on happiness from the ancient world. And we'll begin with Epicureanism. Epicurus lived from 341 to 270 BC and is often viewed as the poster boy for a hedonistic lifestyle. A popular gourmet cooking site, Epicurious.com, creatively plays off this reputation to celebrate the pleasures of a great meal. But as we'll see, Epicurus was not the total party animal that people often think. Although he rightly regarded physical pleasure as a good thing and believed that it was natural for us to want it, he personally thought that friendship and mental tranquility were even better. It was these latter sources of happiness, and not merely the pleasures of the flesh, which Epicurus thought of as the greatest goods. In order to attain them, he even commended a life of virtue. After all, it's the virtuous person, living at peace with his neighbors, who generally has far less cause for fear and worry than someone who's been up to no good. 
Such a person is thus more likely to experience the true joys of friendship and mental tranquility than his non-virtuous counterpart. As you can probably see, there are aspects of Epicureanism that even a Christian can appreciate. But there are problems with this view as well. For example, while Epicurus did not deny either God or the gods, he did teach that they were rather unconcerned about human affairs, and he denied that there would be a final judgment. For him, death was simply the end of existence, and you didn't need to worry that God would judge you for your deeds in an afterlife. But these ideas made many people uncomfortable. For instance, the Roman philosopher Cicero reacted strongly against Epicureanism in his book, The Nature of the Gods. And Lactantius, an early Christian writer, believed that only the fear of God guards the mutual society of men. In his view, if people think they aren't accountable to God, society will likely be in trouble. Hence, many thinkers worried that Epicureanism might lead to an amoral, or even immoral, pursuit of pleasure as the highest good of life. And unfortunately, this can just as easily lead to debauchery and selfishness as it can to the simple, honest lifestyle of Epicurus. So while the Epicurean view of happiness has some things in its favor, there are several reasons for rejecting it. Tomorrow we'll continue by looking at the Stoic view of happiness. Stoicism was another important school of thought that addressed the issue of human happiness. In the ancient world, it was the single most successful and longest-lasting movement in Greco-Roman philosophy. The Stoics' manly, morally tough philosophy of life had broad appeal in the ancient world. It attracted slaves like Epictetus, as well as the Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius. Even many of the early church fathers admired the Stoic emphasis on moral virtue and integrity. So what did the Stoics think about human happiness? According to Ellen Shari, the Stoics viewed the goal of life as human flourishing— this was understood, however, not in terms of having a long life or being financially successful. Rather, it was viewed as maintaining one's dignity and grace, whatever may happen. The Stoics understood that things don't always work out as we want. Life throws us many curveballs, and if we're not prepared, we're bound to be disappointed. Their solution? In a statement reminiscent of the Buddha's teaching, the Stoic Epictetus declared, "...demand not that events happen as you wish." but wish them to happen as they do happen, and you will get on well. We often don't have any control over what goes on around us, but we can control how we react to it. By knowing the good and morally virtuous thing to do, and by consistently choosing to do this, one attains the highest happiness of which human beings are capable, namely, the enjoyment of self that comes from the conviction that one is living a principled life of the highest integrity. This, in a nutshell, is the Stoic conception of human happiness. But there are some problems with this view. Although Christians will readily cheer the Stoic commitment to a life of moral virtue, they'll nonetheless deny that such a life is ever really possible apart from the grace of God. As the Christian theologian Augustine observed, Stoicism fails to adequately address the problem of human sinfulness. Moreover, he thought it holds out the false hope that one can achieve happiness through self-effort. But as Augustine wisely saw, only God can make us truly happy. Hence, while there's much to admire about Stoicism, as a philosophy of human happiness, it must ultimately disappoint. Having now surveyed Epicureanism and Stoicism and found each of them wanting, we must next turn to Neoplatonism to see if it fares any better. Today we'll consider an important Neoplatonic view regarding the nature of human happiness. 
Probably the most important Neoplatonist philosopher was a man named Plotinus, who lived in the 3rd century A.D. Plotinus believed that in the beginning was the One, the supreme transcendent principle and the ground of all being. Everything which now exists ultimately originated from the One through a series of emanations. Since everything proceeds from the One, not by a process of creation, but rather by a process of emanation, creator and creation are not sharply distinguished in Plotinus's account. Although this is certainly different from the biblical view in which there is a clear distinction between creator and creation, it would probably not be fair to simply call Plotinus a pantheist, that is, someone who believes that all of reality is divine. According to one scholar, Plotinus tried to steer a middle course between pure pantheism on the one hand and creation by God on the other. But since everything that exists emanates or proceeds from the one, Plotinus' view is certainly close to pantheism, and it is thus quite different from the biblical doctrine of creation. But how is this relevant to Plotinus's perspective on the nature of human happiness? Well, you see, according to Plotinus, since everything, including mankind, emanates out of the one, human beings can only truly find happiness by realizing their oneness with the one. In Plotinus's view, happiness resides in a person's realization that she is one with divinity. According to Plotinus, then, realizing one's oneness with the one is the key to human happiness. Are there any problems with this view? Although there's much to admire about Neoplatonism, and while it was quite influential in the early church, it was never entirely accepted, and that for several reasons. From a Christian perspective, Neoplatonism ultimately has a defective view of God, creation, human nature, the meaning of salvation, and what happens to a person after death. In other words, while the system is very religious, it's not Christianity. And thus, while we can agree with Plotinus that happiness can only be found in God, we must nonetheless reject his system on the grounds that he's not pointing us to the one true God. Tomorrow we'll conclude by looking at a Christian perspective on the nature of human happiness. Having previously surveyed some of the most important perspectives on happiness from the ancient world, we'll now bring our discussion to a close by briefly considering the thought of Augustine, one of the greatest theologians of the early church. Augustine lived from 354 to 430 AD and was familiar with the various perspectives on happiness which we've already examined. Like the Epicureans, he believed that our happiness is at least tangentially related to our physical well-being. Like the Stoics, he believed that a life of integrity and moral virtue was important for human happiness. And like the Neoplatonist philosopher Plotinus, Augustine thought that true human happiness could only be found in God. Nevertheless, Augustine views each of these perspectives as ultimately inadequate for all who long to experience lasting human happiness. And Augustine thinks that's pretty much all of us. After all, neither physical well-being nor a virtuous life can grant us lasting happiness if our existence ends at death. And while he agrees with Plotinus that happiness can only be found in God, Augustine, like all Christians, is convinced that Plotinus ultimately has a defective view of God. So where is true and lasting happiness to be found? Ellen Chari sums up Augustine's view quite nicely when she writes, Happiness is knowing, loving, and enjoying God securely. In Augustine's view, happiness is a condition in which one's desires are realized. Happy is he who has what he wants, he writes in his little book on happiness. 
But he also believed that what we all really want is the everlasting possession of the greatest good that can be had. That is, we want the best that there is and we want it forever. But since the greatest good can only be God, the source and foundation of every other good there is or ever will be, it seems that what we ultimately want, whether we realize it or not, is God. And if we want only the best that there is, but want it forever, it seems that we must ultimately want the very thing God freely offers us in Christ, namely, everlasting life in the presence of God. The psalmist urges us to taste and see that the Lord is good, and those who do are promised joy in His presence and eternal pleasures at His right hand. This, then, is Augustine's view on human happiness. In my opinion, it's far and away the best perspective that we've examined in this program, and I hope that you'll think so, too.